Good morning, everyone. This is our second Sunday that we're going to be doing an online assembly uh, because of the coronavirus epidemic. And so it's a situation that's uh, tough for all of us. I think it's not the place that we would like to be. It would be, again, great for us to have this auditorium full out there with kids running around and, and lots of noise and lots of excitement. But for the time being, uh, this is uh, this is where we're at. And Lord willing, uh, Something I've been praying for is that God, for God to heal our world, for God to provide conviction during this time. And when all of this is uh, is settled out, that all of us look a whole lot more like Jesus than we did before. And if, if that happens, then, then that's uh, I'm going to be really excited about that. And I've been seeing lots of pretty amazing things that have been happening uh, during the time that um, this that we've been on lockdown. Like, for example, you know, in my neighborhood... There was, I've seen more people out walking with their children and, and uh, walking their dogs around than I've ever seen before. And I've, uh, there was a lady that on our uh, neighborhood Facebook page posted, she said, we got this bulk shipment of toilet paper, we have more than we need, and she put it on the sidewalk for anybody that would come by that could grab some. And it's just a, a neat thing to see our, our community members looking out for each other. And uh, we're seeing the same sort of thing in the church. Um, someone actually, different people sent me this here. And so this is uh, social distance baptistry. And so what, if, if someone wants to be baptized here in the next few weeks, we'll set this up behind the church building and I'll fill it full of water and uh, people will stand back and a few of us will throw uh, softballs there until it hits the, the trigger and you, you fall in kind of thing. No, I'm, I'm just messing around. That's, uh, we're, but that's uh, a few people sent me that and I got a kick out of it. But what has happened, what's been pretty amazing, is these uh, messages that we've been putting out on Facebook have received a ton of views all over the world. Uh, like on Wednesday night, we did a Facebook Live Bible class, and there was a person from New Zealand chimed in. There were people from Texas and Florida chiming in. And it's just amazing what some of this technology does and maybe opening doors that we didn't have before. So who knows what's going to happen. But for today, here we are, and uh, we're going to continue to get into God's Word. We're going to be in uh, looking at, at some of the, the crucifixion of Jesus today and some of the words that he says from the cross. But sometimes we don't have to say very much to say a lot. And I think about uh, an example that I heard a while back, and I researched it. And the uh, Battle of Gettysburg that happened in 1863 in our nation, it was a, a battle that a lot of young men lost their lives, and it was really, really destructive. And it was the battle that changed the direction of the Civil War, and the North started having uh, the momentum and, and eventually won that war. But after that battle was over, there was uh, that uh, the uh, battlefield was dedicated to the young men who had, had given their lives, and there was a few different speakers that were asked to come and to participate in in the ceremony and, and speak. And one of the gentlemen's names was Edward Errett, and he was one of the famous orators of the day. He was known for being able to captivate crowds and hold their attention for hours. And another one was Abraham Lincoln. And Everett uh, spoke for over two hours. And this is what he had to say afterwards. I wish that I could flatter myself that I had come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes, in spite of Lincoln's disclaimer that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. 
His brief speech continues to echo in American history. And that is, of course, the Gettysburg Address. And it's a short speech of just a few minutes that changed the world and uh, changed our nation. And, and so Jesus, when he, gets, he is put on the cross, he says a few things that are very, very short statements that have a huge impact and impact the world for uh, um, 2,000 years later. And until Jesus returns, we continue to be impacted by him. We're going to start, though, before we get there, is and we talk about the, how Jesus speaks to his Father from the cross, we're going to look at another passage right before Jesus gets to the cross. And remember, in the last weeks, we've talked about how Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and it, was a, it, it wasn't awesome because his disciples were, were debating about who was going to be the greatest, and one of them had betrayed him, and he knew it. And Jesus washes their feet, and he's trying to, to demonstrate what it means to live as part of his kingdom. He uh, goes up to the Mount of Olives or the, on the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. And I spoke about that last week, that he really didn't want to go to the cross if there was another way. And he prayed for his disciples that they be unified and that they um, not fall into temptation uh, that was coming. Right after that, he is uh, arrested. And Judas comes up the mountain there with uh, some some guards from the temple and uh, and they arrest Jesus. And in that process in, in that situation Jesus looks at Judas and says, "Are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss?" And and that's a strange language for us, but a, a kiss was a warm greeting that you would greet people that were close friends to you for, to you. And so what Jesus is saying is, "Judas, are you going to betray me with this warm handshake right here?" You're going to offer this greeting of friendship and by doing so betray me. And he is uh, arrested and Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the, the servant of the high priest's ear. And Jesus says, enough of this, puts the ear back on. And Jesus is, is led away. And the first thing that happens is he goes and he is on trial there at the, the, the place where the high priest lived and, and where the Sanhedrin came together, all of that area. And it says in uh, Mark chapter 14, starting in verses 61 and 62, he says, Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Now remember, that's an important phrase. You go back to Exodus when Moses is there at the burning bush and says, Wait a minute, God, I can't go back to Egypt unless I tell them your name. And God says, I am who I am. And Jesus shares, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the response of the religious leaders is, Oh no, he has said blasphemy. We're going to execute him. We've got to get rid of him right now. Because they understand exactly what Jesus has said. And he has said that he is God. He's been sharing that in, in closed circles on the way up, up to this. He's, he shared it in some ways in the book of John with some of the religious leaders. But John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In chapter 1, verse 14 of John, it says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is more than just a great teacher. He's more than just a prophet. He is God in the flesh who came to earth. And not only that, is he is a priest. And he is the one that is going to stand in the gap between us and God. 
and he is also a king. In fact, that's what the term Messiah means. You remember when Jesus is crucified, there's a sign that is placed up there by Pilate that says, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders hated it. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. I'm going to put that up there because that's what, that's, that's what he's claiming to be, and, and that's what I'm just going to, I'm going to leave up there. And we're going to talk about those three things later, God, priest, and king, when we talk about resurrection. But we're going to look at a few of these phrases that Jesus speaks to his father when he is on the cross. Remember, as, as he is led out of the, the city there, and he is flogged after he uh, is condemned by Pilate, and they lead him up onto the hill, and they crucify him up there, on the hill between two other criminals there. And one of the things he says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we read that, I think all of us, our heart is just wrenched with how painful that must have been for Jesus to say that. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about what exactly does that mean. Does that mean that because God can't look on sin, that God separated himself from Jesus there for, for a time, and that's why it became dark, and, and that there was a place there in history and on the earth that God's presence left? Or was it a situation where, where Jesus, because he was God himself, and God can't look on sin, that, that God, the God part of Jesus left him for a while. I mean, there's all sorts of things that, that uh, there's been books and articles and, and classes taught on that. But I believe that when we go down that road, we're missing the bigger point here. Look at this, uh, uh, this picture here, and the quote here is from Mark 15:34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this is a famous painting by Van Gogh. And years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a, um, a museum that had some Van Gogh paintings there. And I remember how amazing they were to see in person. And you couldn't get too close to them because there were some barriers there. These paintings are worth millions. But can you imagine going into a, uh, a museum and walking up to one of those paintings and seeing this, this beautiful picture of Van Gogh is created here. And go up, and you see there's a, there's a church building there with a little steeple. Can you imagine walking in and looking and focusing at the top of that little steeple from about that far away and getting your eyes in there really close, really close, and saying, wait, wait a minute here, I need a magnifying glass, and coming in with a magnifying glass and looking at it. And you just spent days just looking at that little piece of it. I think it would be easy to lose the sense of the picture. When you back up and you're able to look at it in the museum, you can see how beautiful it is. You can feel the night, uh, the, the chill of the night air. You can imagine the stars up there. And, and when we try to figure out exactly what is Jesus saying in terms of, of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, without stepping back and looking at the big picture, I think we miss it. And so it's important to remember here is when Jesus is speaking to his Father, he is quoting from Psalm 22. And the first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Can you sense the anguish there that is written in Psalm 22? This anguish of God, I, I know you're there, but I just, I just don't feel like you're there. I feel like you're far away, even though I, I know you're there here, but I feel like you're just so, so far from me. 
And imagine that Jesus had to have wrestled with it. Maybe this is part of his human side that is gushing out of him here. As he's thinking, I was on the hill and I prayed that God would take this cup from me. And I didn't get what I wanted. And it hurts. And I don't want to be here. And, it, and it's painful. And I sure feel that God is a million miles away right now. This God that I have shared life with, that I am part of, he's, I just feel like I'm missing it. This is not how life is supposed to be. And I think for all of us, we find ourselves in situations that we feel that, right? We find ourselves in situations where we feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've prayed, I've asked, I've tried to, to do right, and this uncomfortable, painful thing happens to me. Why can't I not, why can't my prayers be answered the way I want, you know, whatever it may be? And we find ourselves feeling that. We can identify with that, can't we? Another short phrase that Jesus says when he's on the cross is, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, there is, uh, uh, this is from Psalm 31, verse 5, and this is a psalm of, of trust. A psalm that the writer says, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to trust in you, I'm going to give my best to you, and into your hands I commit my spirit. Something I, I think about here, uh, if you look at, um, and let me give you an example here, is that we know that Jesus, it says in Hebrews, that he was tempted as all of us are. And he must have, at the Garden of Gethsemane there, really been tempted, in, in, uh, like I mentioned before, to, to run, to disappear, just to, to not follow through with the plan. There's a song that we, we sing called uh, 10,000 Angels. And there's a couple of, of one of the verses in, in the chorus here I'll, I'll read for you. It says, When they nailed him to the cross, his mother stood nearby. He said, Woman, behold thy son. He cried, I thirst for water, but they gave him none to drink. Then the sinful work of man was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Even though this song doesn't use the term there of temptation, what we're seeing is, Jesus, we can sense this temptation that Jesus must have felt. Can you imagine him being up on the cross there, looking down and all the pain that he is experiencing emotionally, physically, spiritually, sensing all the sin of the world on him. Can you imagine the temptation for him to be able to look down and say, you know, I made all of you down here. I made of you. I was created all of you. I created all this this wood that I am I am here that I am crucified on. I have walked through you. I have fed you throughout your life. You know, forget it, you maggots. I'm going to come down from this cross and I'm going to bring 10,000 angels and we're going to finish this right here. Can you imagine the temptation to feel something like that? But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't do that. What he said was, God, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He doesn't finish there when he's speaking to his father. Something else he says is, it is finished. And I know for me, my tendency is to, to look at this phrase or this, these few words that Jesus says and think, this is the time where Jesus gives up. He gives up his spirit, as scripture says. 
and look at this phrase as as a as a as a phrase where he is just letting the the life escape from him and and he is admitting defeat of his body but i think there's a better way to look at this again let's go to psalm 22 Because Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It talks a lot about what happens to Jesus on the cross. It talks about, they divided up my clothes, I'm surrounded by dogs, that my life is being poured out. All those things you see in Psalm 22. But these are some of the last verses of Psalm 22. And and listen to this. It says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Continues on, it says, And all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. That's all of us, isn't it? Because none of us can keep ourselves alive indefinitely on this earth. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it, or can be translated, it is finished. And so I wonder if what Jesus isn't doing there on the cross is he is, is up there and he is giving up his, the last bits of his physical spirit at that point. And he says, it is finished. If he isn't proclaiming victory, he isn't proclaiming victory that by his death, he is going to be able to walk into the realm of the dead and walk right back out because of who he is. He's God. He's going to be the first one to raise, to never die again. I wonder if he isn't proclaiming victory because he realizes and knows that what he has been able to do is pulled off the great rescue. That all these people that were there, that were putting nails through his hands, his disciples who have disappeared at this point in time, these people that he's created that need him so bad, that need a rescuer so bad, that he's saying, I've done it, it's finished, I've pulled it off. And the great rescue has happened. I have to think that that's what's going through Jesus' mind as he gives up his spirit. (laughs) Mission accomplished. It's been done. If I was to put these phrases into my own words, these few little phrases from the life of, from Jesus talking to his Father on the cross, it would go something like this. When I feel that you are far off, I still trust in you, and I know that this suffering will come to an end. You notice that? Is that suffering always does come to an end. It always does. If you think about this, if you use the phrase, when will such and such come to an end and fill in the blank. When will this coronavirus thing come to an end so I can get outside again? When will this coronavirus thing come to an end so that we can meet together? When will this coronavirus come to an end so we can, so our, our world can be healed? When will uh, physical pain stop? When will the financial shortage stop? When will, personally, sin and temptation that I struggle with When is that going to stop? When can I stop suffering from some of that stuff? And if we think about it, the example of Jesus shows us, even when we feel like God is far off somewhere, we can still trust him and know that suffering is going to come to an end. Because it always does. Because that's God's promise, is that he comes in at some point in time and he relieves that suffering. With one exception, 
The one exception is, if we do not give our lives to Christ and we do not follow him, then uh, suffering uh, does not end. It just continues in this life and the next life. But as Christians, again, <laughs> I love to say, we've got the best news in the world because the future is better than the past. We have hope that nobody else does. And Jesus shows that on the cross. I want to read one more scripture here from Hebrews chapter 13, or chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so the Hebrew writer has just spent all of chapter 11 walking through all of these different people of faith that survived. They suffered, they had difficulties, whatever. They survived. And he says, now that you've got this great cloud of witnesses around you, throw off the stuff that slows you down and just go. It says, for the joy set before him, talking about Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, wait a minute. How, how can we find joy from being on... How would Jesus find joy from being on the cross? I mean, that's not fun, getting beat and nailed up there and called all these terrible things. But the joy comes from him understanding that him making that sacrifice and him making those... Uh, and deciding that he's going to walk through that for us, that he was able to be the great rescuer for us. Now, there's a lot of things that we may uh, end up doing in life that are not comfortable, that are hard, but they bring a tremendous amount of joy because it's the right thing to do. So for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's really the message for us, is hopefully we're never a people that grow weary and lose heart, but we just continue to get stronger and more courageous as God continues to mold us and shape us. Uh, Jesus demonstrates that as a great example, and that's an example for all of us. And my prayer for all of you and for all of us as we're separated uh, all over the valley, and, and some of you will be watching this from all over the world, my prayer is that we can take on the message of Jesus, and that we can understand, as I said in my own words here, when I feel that God is far off, I still trust in him, and I know that the suffering will come to an end. Have a blessed day.